Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake Kettle, and thanks for joining us this evening. With me, as always, is founder of DoseNation.com, author of Psychedelic Information Theory, and co-host of the podcast, James Kent. James, how are you this week? I'm doing well this week, and I think we're going to have a great interview today, because I've known our guest for many years, and uh, I know many of our listeners probably don't know who he is, but he does a lot of very interesting stuff, so why don't you go ahead and give him the intro? Yeah, why don't, why don't we just get right into it today, because this is going to be a great subjects, uh, a subject, excuse me, or a grouping of subjects. Uh, Dr. Patrick Archie, MD, is a practicing oncologist and former fellow, uh, fellow at the MD Anderson Cancer Research Center in Houston. He recently published the paper Music-Based Interventions in Palliative Cancer Care, a review of quantitative studies and neurobiological literature in the journal Supportive Care in Cancer. Dr. Archie is also a flamenco guitarist who produces music under the name Stereonosis, a project which blends traditional Middle Eastern hand drumming and stringed instrumentation with kinetic breakbeats and beatboxing. He has traveled around the world uh, to record with musicians who are masters in their field. On this coming Thursday, August 29th, in Portland, Oregon, so mark that date on your calendar, everybody. Make sure you mark that date, Thursday, August 29th, in Portland, Oregon. The musicians from Stereonosis will be performing live for the first time at the Alberta Rose Theater. They will be coming from as far away as Belgium, Istanbul, one of my favorite cities, and Uzbekistan to reproduce, to, to reproduce the recent Stereonosis album, The Hybrid, in a live improvisational environment. And you can find more information about Stereonosis, this show, and The Hybrid at Stereonosis.com. Patrick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So I wanted to start the show a little bit by talking about um, how when I first met Patrick... He, it was when I was publishing uh, Trip Magazine, maybe the first or second issue of Trip Magazine, and Patrick sent me a tape of his, and it was called Mother of Moth. And at the time, you were doing some sort of, um, I don't know, black magic, occult, delta blues type music, guitar. And uh, can you explain what Mother of Moth was and uh, why you contacted me back, was it like 92 or something, 93, 96? Yes. So I was actually, uh, I was in undergraduate school at that time, and um, I had encountered a copy of the Resonance Project and seen some of the, the music reviews there, and I thought Where that, were you when you found it? Um, I was in Johnson City, Tennessee, of all places, um, and uh, a friend musician was like, oh, you got to check out this magazine. You're never going to believe, the, you know, the, the content in here. And, um, and I flipped to the music section immediately, and I saw reviews of some of the artists that... Um, that I thought were cool. And I was like, um, you know, but they were all on labels. And so I kind of presumed, I mean, I was publishing this, um, out of my dorm room, you know, uh, <laughs> so that's great. The, yeah. The, the first EP was actually, um, it was pretty, that was pretty middle Eastern inspired one. Um, it was just called the EP. Um, and it was like me playing guitar, basically open tune, steel string, um, guitar, um, I had been listening. I had, in high school, I was all into metal and, and stuff like right, that. I had pictures of you with like super long hair and yeah, your shirt off and like yeah, total metaled out, like James Hetfield style. Exactly. Oh, man. And it, it, what was funny was, you know, I, I started getting into Middle Eastern music and I, I would, I would bring this, this material that I composed uh, to the metal band and they were like, dude, what are we going to do with this? Um, and I was like, well, actually, that's a good point. I have no idea what we're going to do with this. <laughs> um, and then I ended up, you know, I go to undergrad and then I met, um, uh, some friends whose folks were from the Middle East and they just, um, hooked me up with more and more material. And, and for a phase of my life, I just dropped Western music altogether. 
um, and really got into like um, Sufi Persian music and um, yeah, music from from the Arabic Middle East and um, uh, also Indian classical music and stuff like that. Um, but that that EP, um, I remember emailing James and being like, "Hi, I'm really interested in in submitting a you know a copy of of this EP that I've released." And it was um, just a cassette tape. It was just like a, a cassette like, tape. Like a, yeah. With like a uh, photocopied cutout <laughs> insert so, sleeve. So pretty much super <laughs> lo-fi. Hey, that's um, all right. But the, the, the audio quality was, it was actually pretty decent. Um, I was trying to find that tape yesterday to play a track from it and I could not find it. So I think my copy yeah. of it is long lost time. I'll have to I'll have to dig one up for you, but it's uh, that that first track is actually really solid. I've come back to it a few times. I don't I don't like listening to all you know the material that I've released over the years, but that that first track of the EP is still um, still good material. The uh, what I remember James's response when I asked him, "Hey, would you be interested or would you be open to reviewing an independent artist who you know has and no?" This support? was a letter, a package that you said this is like almost pre-internet. Yeah, and it, would you be interested in potentially reviewing this project that has no label backing whatsoever? And his response is very like, it's, it just, it totally depends on the merit of the material. Like, you know, if, if the music is really good, then yes. If the music is, is not, then no. Um, <laughs> and, and so I thought that was completely fair, you know, and I, I kept my fingers crossed and I remember getting, um, uh, his uh, like it was an e- email response saying yeah I- i'm reviewing this and i was like turning back handsprings you know like, I was, like <laughs> this is fabulous you know like this really really cool magazine and these uh, other artists that um i think he had reviewed um uh the herbalizer and um the squirrel nut zippers and a couple of other people and i was like man this is really cool to right, be right you and know, that's when we were collecting we were actually collecting new releases from some some smaller or you know they were small indie labels back then, but they're big labels now. Yeah, and uh, and he yeah. So we were looking for alternative music of any kind, just as long as it was good, you know. Yeah, we were the most acoustic. Well, that's not. There, we were one of the most acoustic things I think you guys ever reviewed. It was is all acoustic trance. You know, mm-hmm. I was just I, I was really interested in the idea of trying to use um, completely acoustic instrumentation and as much analog um, gear as possible, uh, as opposed to digital to. Um, produce this trance, you know, tr- acoustic trance. So, what kind of what kind of acoustic instrumentation were you using to to develop that trance? Because when I was when I when I first saw your album, there were names that were like that made me feel like it was it was kind of there was like some sort of like Crowley or black magic element to it. Were you into like something occult at the time that was that was yeah, pulling was re- towards this trance experimentation? So I was really interested in Western esotericism uh, in uh-huh. undergrad. Um, I actually I did an independent study on Western esotericism. I read like 22 books um, in a couple months and wrote a paper um, that spanned from everything from like uh, basically from Babylonian magic to John Dee and um, and his very strange uh, language that he claimed to have received. Um, and the people that were influenced by that, including um, all the way down to Jimmy Page. I mean, that didn't make it into the paper, but um, that was that was actually how I had originally encountered uh, any of that stuff, was I was really into the acoustic material of Jimmy Page with Zeppelin, and I, I just found it really intriguing um, where he claimed to be getting his influences from. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, that just led to, like, um, reading about uh, alchemy and, and the symbolism of that and, um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. And around the same time, I was really interested in South American shamanism. I did another independent study on that, wrote a paper about that. Um, uh, yeah, it, so, it was... 
Go ahead. So, so I just want to ask you a quick question. When you say Western esotericism, so there's a, there, there's a, there's a, this is a broad definition, and I kind of want to specify a little bit more about what you're talking about. So, yeah. for example, like Tim Wallace Murphy, I don't know if you're familiar with that author, but he writes uh-huh. about the, the Gnostic traditions and the um, esoteric traditions in that way. Yeah. Uh, is that more of what you studied, or are you more talking about um, the kind of like Aleister Crowley and that kind of stuff? So, the I, I guess the, uh, no, I mean, the paper actually um, barely approached the era of, of Crowley, but... Um, okay. Like I was super interested in apocrypha, pseudepigrapha, ah. um, and 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 Gnosticism in particular. Fascinating and, stuff. And, and and yeah, like I I read a whole lot about this form of mysticism that predated <laughs> Kabbalah, like Hebrew mysticism, called uh, Merkava mysticism. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And they, and they can like there was one academic author that I I, I think it, he he called Merkava sort of Jewish Gnosticism, but the the whole di- idea of like um you know leaving your body. Uh, your physical body on this plane into this um, ethereal um, realm uh, into the, I think, seven concentric spheres of it. It, it, it oddly struck me as uh, similar to like the Matrix or something. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. Absurd an- analogy, but, um, but yeah, it, it's. But for uh, a 19 year old in the early right, exactly, 90s, that exactly. was exact, that was the framework you were working with. Yeah. Um, but I, I found all of that really fascinating. Um, I mean, a lot of the music that I was listening to, I, I found it to be, uh, yeah, I mean, it was sort of, um, ritualistically trancy, you know? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I was really interested in, um, like I told you, I was listening to Sufi music from kind of all over the Middle East, and I also like to listen to um, Nawa music from Morocco. That's some very trancey stuff, and also like the the master musicians of Jajuka. I mean, people like Allen Ginsberg, um, and, and a lot of people uh, like there were there were some beat poets, the Rolling Stones. I think uh, maybe some of the members of Zeppelin went up to, into the hills of Morocco to hear this group called the Master Musicians of Jajuka. And there's one piece that Bill Laswell remastered called um, Bill Laswell of Praxis. Yeah. And, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the, he did, he did a whole album. It was called Apocalypse Cro- Across the Sky. But there's this one piece that he has that it's, it's, it's mainly, um, pan pipes and, and, and like these Darbuka style drums. And it's in a, and it's in a five count. And it's, if you ever get a chance to hear this song, it's, it's kind of everything that we're talking about right now. Like it, it has this really heavy trance vibe. And it, particularly with Laswell on the, on the, the board, it's going to so sound. So what is it? It's or, Bill Laswell remix, the master musicians of, of Jajuka. Yeah. And, and the J- name of how the do you song, spell that? How do you spell so, Jajuka? J A J O U K A. And, okay. Um, the song, the track title is, it's, it's E-L space, um, M-E-H-A-D-E-Y, if I'm not mistaken. Al-Mahedi? Um, yeah, I, I would be murdering the pronunciation. Moroccan yeah. Arabic sounds like the, the only Arabic that I tried to learn was Egyptian colloquial Arabic, and I, I'm still like a, I mean, uh, I'm sh- shamefully beginner at it. Um, but it, it's so <laughs> funny how many dialects, like, they they stem from the same, oh, of you know, course. like, alphabet. They, 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 like, I mean, folks from, you know, uh, one edge of that continent to the other have absolutely no idea what the others are saying. Um, if but you music, talk- like, is, is this wonderful, like, medium through which, like, it, it just doesn't matter. You know, like, when I went to record this last album, and I think, um, we started to go in this direction earlier in the interview, but, um, this, this last album that I did was, like, so much more ambitious than, the, the stuff that I was doing before because I was, I, you know, having been a session guitarist in a recording studio, I, 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 I always wanted, I always had this desire to, like, what if I were able to find other session musicians in places of, you know, this nature, um, and try to blend modern 
urban Western beats with traditional Middle Eastern melodies and percussion and, right. and try to kind of cross cultural boundaries, um, with that, that, that sort of, um, approach in mind. And I found like Sinan in Istanbul, I met him at a, like a musical conservatory. Um, and, and he, he just, I mean, this, this, this guy that I'm bringing next Thursday, just the string player, Sinan, is so mind blowing to see. And he plays the oud, person. which is uh, like a little sort of Middle Eastern mandolin type. So instrument. it's he actually the Turks call his instrument the balama, which is supposed to, uh, supposed to be oh. like a it's, a it's a it's a descendant of the oud. So like the, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. No, it's, it's all good. Like I love oud music, and I know Sinan loves oud, mu- oud music. I think the oud actually um, preceded it in time, but it, the oud gave rise to this other instrument in um, like the Levant called the um, the buzuk, and I'll be playing the buzuk on one track in the show next week. Um, the buzuk, I think, gave rise to the to the Turkish balama, and and Sinan's approach to this instrument, um, he has this this particular style of playing it called shelpy style, which involves an eight finger overhand tapping technique, and mm-hmm. you kind of have to you have to see the YouTube video to like really appreciate what he's doing. Um, but I, his repertoire was just in absolutely unbelievable. Like when I went to this conservatory, he was like, well, "Oh, let's, I, let's let's back up a little bit." Okay, I want to talk. I want to I want to get into the whole the whole mindset that you had going to these places to record musicians. Sure, you didn't just jump. You didn't just say, "Hey, I'm going to go record musicians and see what happens." You started first with an idea of I'm going to record breakbeats at these speeds and then take them and play them for musicians as like a click track right. and see how they react to them. Yes. Now, who did you get to do to, to lay down those those original foundational beats? Well, some of the first ones um, came from this. This was this really funny timing. Uh, I went to go. Um, so I, I recorded uh, KJ Saka. Um, right who he's he's a kit drummer and he plays like um the most um what he's most known for on the internet is is drum and bass like he plays like 180 beats per minute on a kit and wow uh, yeah and and he does it live and he does it, it, it better than anyone you've ever seen in your entire life there's this one video in seattle it was the radio station was c89.5 189.5 or something but there's C89. this viral i think i've yeah, heard of that actually viral video of kj playing drums on that on that you know radio station and it it's really illustrative of of what he's capable of um you know like live and so like right. I, he can I, he can play for hours at a time he can just sit down and just lay down a breakbeat and just play for hours at a time and it sounds like a dj's recording of a breakbeat or somebody you know it's or or a, or a, or a drum and bass machine but i have to uh, be honest with a you sequencer. I, and he goes he'll go to burning man and he'll play for hours at a time he'll play um shows uh, and you know just play just just play extended trancey drum solos for long long periods of time it's very impressive and you came up to seattle and recorded kj Saka, i think twice didn't you i did um and who and you also recorded a beatboxer um and that that was the funny timing part right was so yeah. i asked him i was like hey man i'm i'm looking to record some beatboxing you know for some old school hip hop um grooves and he was like yeah well i've got this friend blake um that you should totally talk to so um i, and I brought blake lewis yeah, yeah so i who brought was an american blake. idol finalist oh was yeah. he yeah, I don't watch American Idol. I'm sorry, so I don't know. Well, I know a lot of people don't, <laughs> See, but uh, but if you did, you would know who Blake Lewis was. Yeah. So so check it. So I was in the studio with Blake, uh, and and we got to hanging out, and he was like, um, he was like, yeah, you know, Kevin's told me about you and what you're doing. Um, he was like, That's incidentally, 
you know, um, I, I'm going to be on national television here pretty soon. And I was like, I was like, Oh really? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, I don't think, I don't get the vibe. You, you're probably going to be into it. And I was like, no. And he's like, no, I'm doing karaoke on Fox. And I was like, you're going to be on American Idol. And he was like, yeah. And the, I mean, my first impression was, I was like, dude, there's no way that any beatboxer is going to get like past the first round in American Idol. Nobody wants to hear a beatboxer on American Idol, you know? And it, Blake went all the way to second place in his seventh season. He was seen by over seven million people. It was I uh, just like everybody. I, I just couldn't believe, um, how far he went. Um, but that was, that was, was totally beatboxing. after the album. Right. And on that track that we, we listened to at the opening of the show, was that him beatboxing on that yes, track? Yes, it at the was. The show? In fact. And he was just beatboxing straight microphone through a bass amplifier. Yeah. There was no effects, no studio effects. It was just, just him. Yeah. I, and, I, he, and he did that for like two hours. He just sat there and, yeah. and, 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 and for like two hours, man. And it, he was crazy. Yeah, I, I wanted to get the Ampeg stack just to get his kick sound like really deep and, and, and heavy hitting. The, uh, we, so that ended up, I ended up taking that beat to, to Istanbul with me. I recorded that Ney player, Muslim Rahal in Istanbul because I couldn't get a visa to go to Syria where he was. Um, and then, uh, Miles J was, you hear it, right? Yeah, like later in that track, Miles just shreds the upright bass with a bow. Um, and there's, there's, uh, there's Darbuka, there's Rick, there's, um, those are like the, the hand drum and the, the tambourine of Arabic percussion. And it's, um, it's, it's a really intense track. Um, we're going to be playing that live next Thursday. And, and, and yeah, we, our Nay player, um, uh, actually, as it turns out, there is a guy who's played Nay. So Nay is Arabic reed flute. That's the instrument that you heard, um, playing the, that melody at the beginning of the track. And that will be, that part will be played by, um, a guy named Michael Nagweb, who's, um, he actually played, uh, at the Cairo Opera House for four years before he came to the States. Um, and he's going to be doing some, some improvisation himself, um, with Miles and, and the rest of us, um, particularly on that track. Um, but that's, uh, that's one thing I like about you is, um, you know, a lot of people, when they put together a music project, they say, oh, I need somebody to put down a flute track, and they just find a flutist. Patrick is the kind of person who needs to find the best in their field or, you know, in the top five in the world. He's not satisfied by just having somebody who can play well do it. He wants to have the masters. And when he goes into a place to record, it's not just like, here's my microphone, lay down your best track. He sets up the room. I mean, he produces the room. He puts, he gets the angles for all of the monitors and everything just the way he wants them. And he gets the sound just the way he likes it. I've never seen anybody work in exactly the same way, but you are very, very particular about the way that you go and put together a piece of music. That's why the music sounds so great. <laughs> I, I plead guilty to a lot of obsessive compulsive personality disorder, man. Like, but you like, let it work for you, you though. Yeah. You do. It's, it's rigid perfectionism to, yeah, to a fault probably, but, um, but yeah, we would record, like when I went to Istanbul to record, um, you know, some of those musicians, we would record for three days and that might end up, uh, you know, being three minutes, you know, on the actual track, like just really being discriminating. Um, you know, you try to keep it as fresh, um, when you're actually, you know, tracking as you possibly can. And, and that could involve like, um, oftentimes co-composing, like I would bring a guitar or an oud or, you know, some similar instrument and be like, Hey, I've, you know, I've got this melodic idea, um, this riff or this, you know, this beat and, you know, let them play it back to you and be like, yes, yes. And then, you know, like later saying, okay, just like slightly more in this direction or being as abstract as like when I was in the studio with Blake and he was like, okay, um, what, what are you looking for? And I was just like, think about the idea of graffiti. 
And, right. and then he would like, and that actually, when I told him to think about the idea of graffiti, that was the beat that he produced that ended up being okay. the backbone to Sumerian breakbeat. That's fantastic. Yeah, so, so it's funny. Here's, but here's, something that, here's something that I, that sort of strikes me as an interesting scene. You're, um, a young American music producer and musician, and you've got a six string steel guitar. And, um, beatboxers doing hip hop beats and a breakbeat drummer doing 180 BPM stuff. What do these classically trained Middle Eastern musicians do when you put the headphones on them and you say, improvise to this? And it's KJ Sokka. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, what do they do? So it's, it's funny, you know, um, it's good to, to have some mutual friends, I think, to like just start the conversation. Like, um, I was very lucky to have a friend, um, who's actually from Portland, um, staying in Istanbul, who spoke the language, um, quite well. He was able to translate, um, for me in Turkish. I don't know a word of Turkish. Um, that's not true. I know a couple of words, Turkish, but like, I mean, David could actually hold on a conversation. Um, and this is David Rees of, of Davir Productions, by the way. Um, he's a, he's also another, um, big name in Portland as far as Middle Eastern music is concerned. He's a co-promoter of this show. But, um, having David there was a super big help. And also, um, uh, my, when I went to Cairo, I stayed with my friend Shihab Ismail, who, um, you know, he did all my translating for me in Egyptian colloquial Arabic with the musicians I recorded there. And, um, so what are their just, reactions? What are the musicians' reactions when you put like KJ Saka? Into yeah, their headphones was, and say, "Go ahead and, and you know hand drum along to this." What do they do? Well, do they look well, before, at you like you're crazy? Well, no. Before before I went there, you know, because some of these musicians had never heard um, hip hop or drum and bass or any of that stuff. So I had to establish some degree of credibility. I think another another degree. Um, or another aspect that, that helped me was that, um, several of them knew Miles, the upright bass player. He's, mm. um, so this upright bass player, he is, um, I promise Chase. this is not a d- digression. Like this guy taught himself, um, Arabic by watching black and white movies from the, like the 1960s made shot in like Egypt and Lebanon. And he went to UC Santa Barbara's, um, ethnomusicology program. He majored in Middle Eastern music theory. And within a couple of years, he was performing professionally in Cairo, in Beirut. Like he was recording, he he's performed with Fayrouz, who's like bigger than Aretha Franklin in Lebanon. I mean, he's totally legit. And when I went to places like Cairo or Istanbul, I could say, you know, they would be like, who's your reference? And I would say Miles J and they'd be like, oh, you're legit. Um, and, and that, so knowing some, some, you know, some common friends and musicians, like definitely goes a long way. Then you're in the studio with your material from beatboxers, you know, with this mm-hmm. urban sort of stuff. And, and, and you're, you're like, you, you try to warm the conversation up with like stuff that you, that you know in common, you know, like, like they're like, so, you know, who do you like in, in Middle Eastern music? And if you can, you know, name some artists that, that they're also aware of, they're like, oh, okay, cool. You know, we listen to some of the same material. And then you can be like, okay, so, you know, like I have something in mind that involves this particular maqam, like, you know, Hijaz or Sabah or Bayadi or, so, you know, so like come up with like a, a, like a scale that you agree upon. It's not a, it's not a scale and in the you Western could, sense. And you could pull out your guitar in western yeah. tuny and and play a macaw for them on your guitar but so, so, so like there's some of them that you can't play on a guitar because they involve like semitones that are halfway mm-hmm. they're in, you know in between the the black and the white keys on the piano right mm-hmm. um but that's what you bring a jim bush or an oud or what or you just borrow their instrument for but mm-hmm. once once you say like these are the macams that i think would sound complementary together over this hip-hop beat 
you know, and then, you know, sing a little bit or phrase a little bit on the stringed instrument, then they're like, oh, cool, you know, and, and then it's like, they're just like, I mean, the, the level of musicians that I scouted out was such that it really didn't even matter. Like, Miserly Ahmet, like that, that, that Darbuka player in Istanbul, he was like, he listened to, I don't know, like 30 seconds of KJ Saka and he was like, oh, I got this. <laughs> he just like, That's he great. shredded on that, like, I mean, backwards and forwards. But Ahmet is world, Miserly Ahmet is world renowned. I mean, he's got his own school. He does. He does. He's, he's a monster. Yeah. He's, he's on the same level of drumming for sure as like Abos Kosomov, this guy that, that we're bringing to Portland next week. I mean, Abos, so Abos has, uh, he's recorded with Stevie Wonder. He's been on tour with Zakir Hussein and the Masters of Percussion for the, the last several years. Um, he has performed with the Kronos Quartet, Bela Fleck, Edgar Meyer. He's completely fluent on all of the Middle Eastern hand drums, the Darbuka, the Dahola, the Rick, um, the frame drum. He, he has this one frame drum from Uzbekistan called the Doira. It only, the only other place it occurs that, that I've seen is in Iran, but it's like a, a picture, a wide diameter, um, deep sounding frame drum, um, that has metal rings suspended on the rear face of the frame such that if you shake it in a, um, Z axis, you get this, um, shaker sort of mm-hmm. sound that accompanies the striking with the, with the right hand, you know, giving the deep, like, you know, kick type sound. So it's like a, and, it's like a big, huge snare tambourine sort kinda, of Kind of. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it, if you were, you know, translating to the Amen breakbeat, then it's like, okay, you got the kick, you got the hi hat, you got the snare, you know, and he can do all of that and spades on this drum. I mean, it, it, when, once he adds the shaker, it's just like, <gasps> it's, it's so phenomenally amazing. Yeah. Um, Abos is, Abos is a monster. So the, one of the, you know, as, as an organizer of the show, I wanted to make sure that the, the, I guess the equation of, of, of rhythm was balanced between East and West as much as possible. And so we're actually going to have two beatboxers. One, um, who was amazing on the album. His name's Fatty K. He's from Belgium and he does, you know, um, and you can like, see Fatty K on YouTube. He does beatboxing competitions and he's done some pretty, yeah, he's the, stuff. he's the beatbox champ of Belgium. He you know? does, he, he, like, he actually does street work too. He does street performances on, on YouTube that are pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, he, he, I, I think that, um, like, Fatty K does, he, he does like R&B slash like old school hip hop and he does it in this manner. Like, I mean, the first time that I ever saw him, he was in a battle with Roxer Loops in Belgium and I was like, oh my God, this guy's like, I, I like, I mean, I emailed him immediately and I was like, I, I need to get you in the he studio. He was doing like dubstep bass lines. He was Pretty, like, like, he was like, I mean, he was like doing like breakdowns that I don't think he, the other guy could do. His kick, his kick sound in that video was like so much lower. Like every, you know, everybody was like, Oh, the rocks are, you know, this is, this is a really, really good, you know, performance you just gave. And then Fatty K gets up and he does this syncopated hi hat rhythm with this kick sound that just, it sounded like it was going to like burst the diaphragms of, of the subs in the, in the, you know, stacks that they had on stage. It was so like the low. The attack was so hard, right? Yeah. yeah it, I mean, I, yeah, when I, when I heard that, I was like, I, I must get this guy in the studio and he was totally cool. He let me stay um, with him um, in Belgium. We recorded like in his studio, which was really, really far out studio. It was all solar powered and like, um, I mean, literally, like, I mean, it was cool really, stuff. really fresh. Um, it, so, so he's going to be there. He's going to do awesome, awesome work. We, at the last minute, um, so, so we were gonna, uh, yeah, so, so at the last minute, um, I talked to this kid who, I say kid, he's 20 years old, he's from Irvine, his name's, uh, I call him his Beat Rhino, real name's Monsoon Joe, and, uh, I had seen him and I asked him, I was like, hey man, we're doing this show in Portland, 
And I'd really be interested in, in bringing you in, um, to join Fatty K, you know, to, to compliment what Abos is doing. Here's the website address. And he, and he surfed the website and looked at the bios of the people who are on and there. That's and stereonosis.com. Like, exactly. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and Beat Rhino was like, dude, I'm in. As it turns out, Beat Rhino is the 2013 US beatbox champ. <laughs> I mean, so this kid is I, I strongly encourage anyone especially if you're in the Pacific Northwest if you're into beatbox at all just or Google, Middle Eastern music yeah, or Middle Eastern or, music or fusing the two <laughs> yeah I, I mean check this uh, this guy out I mean he's he's so new to the scene but he has such a fresh perspective that it, it, I mean what he's doing with urban rhythms like acapella is it's mind blowing you know so like you get him you get Fatty K you get Abos like going like the, just the rhythm section of so this show. So let me ask you a question in particular. What is it about the beatboxing and ac- all acoustic instrumentation that that floats your boat as opposed to like say dop punk or like or you know electronic trance? I mean, I'll get, I'm totally out of the closet to listening to a lot of electronic music. Like, I mean, it's I I totally groove out. So to why do you like, want this particular project to be completely acapella and acoustic right. instruments? That's just I find that to be the the um the what's I I, I don't know like as a um I guess having come from an acoustic background but listening to a ton of stuff like Amon Tobin or mm-hmm. you know um I'm trying to think of it. I'm for some reason I'm blanking on my electronic repertoire I'm staring at my vinyl right now <laughs> like, <laughs> but at at any rate so I, I you know I, I'm listening to all of this You're like electronic- Amon Tobin and Bill Laswell fan exactly you like, so- like the you like the moody electronic producers that would make sort of strange and unusual tones you right. listen to like, and- Muslim gauze and, how about uh, uh, Klaus uh, Klaus Schultz you know I haven't heard of Klaus Schultz I, I listen to a lot of like stuff like uh, DJ Crush um. Uh-huh. Uh, Kruder and Dorfmeister, right. um, I don't know, Spore. I listen to a lot of Middle Eastern hip hop. Um, okay. I, particularly with the Arab Spring, there's been an explosion of hip hop in the Arabic world. And some of it, what's so cool about it is that it's, um, you know, like the people who make hip hop here, you know, they're coming with a sort of like a, a, a background, uh, reference of sound that they bring into the interpretation of, of of the use of the of the human voice as a, as a percussive instrument, right? Well, if your background repertoire, you know, of sound in your mind were darbuka rhythms, frame rhythms, rick rhythms, all of those, things, and and the language and the, and the sort of the what's the like the rhythm of Arabic, you get this very different approach to hip hop, and it's it's totally fresh. The very, rhythm very, of the, the spoken Arabic language, you mean? Exactly. It's it's so mm-hmm. inspiring. So all of that stuff, I think, is um, it's an it's an awesome challenge to try to. Um, I mean, basically, uh, I don't want to say reproduce, like we're, we're reinterpreting all of that stuff with acoustic instrumentation and, and doing it with musicians who are on, I mean, a world class level. These cats are first string, you know, like I'm not, I, I'm, I've looked at like Abos's videos and, and, and he's played with these, these people who are just like, I mean, totally beyond major league, you know, as far as I know this, I think this is going to be one of the first performances in which it's, it's going to be like, um, you know, like so much like Western urban, you know, influence going, particularly the two beatboxers. I've never seen him perform with two beatboxers, but that plus Sinan is going to be a very novel equation, like a, you know, uh, something that new that I'm really excited to bring to, to, to those people in Portland who are open to the idea, you know? I wish I lived right. in Portland so I could go see the show. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to go to the show. I live in Seattle. I'm going down for the show. Definitely. Are you? Right. Oh. There. So if you're in the Portland, uh, anywhere in the Pacific Northwest area and can make it to Portland this week and you want to like, Little Dose Nation mini show with Patrick and Stereonosis. The, that'll be where it is, Alberta Rose Theater. We'll talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the show 
uh, when we come to the end of this show, but I think we wanted to diverge and get off on some, some yeah. secondary topics. If you don't mind, Patrick, I, I I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your interest in in Middle Eastern music uh, and Western music and like Sufi music. And you mentioned Western Western esotericism. So I, what I want to do is for a few minutes, I kind of want to work from the east to the west, okay, and talk about the different forms of music and kind of. Um, See, see what what your thoughts on them are, and what and if you've you know other than the Sufi music, you know how how you would incorporate it or how you think it could be incorporated. What is Sufi music? I mean, yeah, what, I, I'm just assuming that it's like a chance that Sufis do, but is the, is there is there some sort of um, particular uh, you know mathematics to it that makes it particularly Sufi music, like um, the comps that they use? And right. So, so I mean, when I think of Sufi music, I think it's it's like the the more um what's the word like uh traditional um earthy more trancey sort of um like music coming out of the middle east um now keep in mind sufism is the mystical branch of islam yes. you know so um I, I think that um, you could look at it as like I, I'm not sure if we were recording yet, but um, you know, you, you had mentioned that you were really into Gregorian chant, yes. And you know, like within the you know the Christian tradition, and I think that Sufi music kind of represents that same. Like when you hear Gregorian chant, it's it's or you know like um, Delta Gospel or something like that. You know, where it makes all of the hair stand up on your body, and you're it's it's not like. You know, um, normal music. <laughs> it, I mean, it's not. It's it like it's it's not the I, I, even the church music that I grew up listening to. You know, where it's all like you know, verse, chorus, first, major, minor, like really. Um, well, that's the, ver- over, the, the music that we grew up with was yeah. either classical or folk driven. Yeah. Right, so and and a lot of it, plain I'm, chant or Byzantine. Well, chant see, a lot or, of the plain chant was phased out after the after the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. So that's probably what you know, that, and that's when most of that went away. From Christianity and from the public consciousness, with the exception of it, you know, them keeping it in monasteries. But in the Middle East, when somebody say wants to learn an instrument, they're learning from a master who's playing more or less traditional scales from that come from the religious styles. It's, uh, I mean, if you, if you, let's put it this way, like, um, when you, uh, just what, let, let's say, like, Google, um, Sabah, S A B A H space mm-hmm. macam m a q a m you're going to you're some of the top hits are going to be um quranic recitation uh-huh. um and 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 some of that quranic recitation is some of the most beautiful macam i i have ever heard you know i mean it's just uh it's the you, you hear it when you're in istanbul you know multiple times a day when do they do the call to prayer i heard it in cairo same same context um and i guess if you if you find yourself some uh just like a Sufi compilation, I saw of of all compilations, this one um, I think it was called Sufi Soul or something. They um, they had this uh, Ney piece um, from Iran um, from one of the Sufi sects. That's the other thing you got to say about Sufism is there's so many different branches, you know, of it. Um, that, that there's going to be different instrumentation. Like there's you know there's there's Afghani Sufis, right? And and they use this instrument called the Rabab, R U B A B. Um, and there, there's this, uh, this one recording of this guy named, uh, Muhammad Rahim Kushnawaz playing this, this, this rabab on that Sufi soul recording that I swear, I mean, it, it's like the beginning of time or something. You, know, wow. you, you hear this recording and you're like, I, I don't even know how to describe it in what, well, in you know, Western there's some, like you said, language. there's some like Robert Johnson music that sounds like that. True, true, true. There, or, or, you know, or when you, when big you fan of that, Robert Johnson, by the way. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, when you, I don't know, I'm not exactly what that is. No, Thirty-two twenty exactly blues. Know what that is, but there is that sort of. Uh, am I still here? Yes, you are. Yeah, there is that sort of music that, like you said, it makes your hair stand up, like it's touching something. Yeah. Or early, like, early, it's timeless. Just, it's timeless, yeah. and it's just it's primordial. Blind Willie uh, Johnson, like there's there there are some really early blues recordings that I I, I totally agree. They they capture that. That's what I mean. That, incidentally, that's it, what I grew up listening to. Um, coming from, you know, the, the South is like, you know, what I, what I think of, um, you know, early music for me was, was stuff like that. And maybe I, I don't know, um, what made me, um, I, I, you know, as a kid and, and really until college, I really wasn't introduced to Middle Eastern music, but, um, there's some, I, I, I think there's something to be said for that commonality. And, 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 and I guess to extend the analogy, um, in blues music, I mean, a lot of that came from, you know, gospel. You listen to, um, what is her name? Uh, uh, there's this, there's this gospel singer. Um, this is killing me, man. I can't believe I'm forgetting this woman's name. Uh, Mahalia, I think it's Mahalia Jackson. Um, yeah, a couple of recordings that I, I heard of her. Um, like, I mean, it's, it, it, it contains that same, like, level of feel, that profound, um, you know, uh, I, I did yeah, uh, it's, I'm, I'm searching for words, but it's sort of like the, the Gnostic sort of, this is gnosis. This is sound. This is like sound that's, um, uh, you know, sort of pulsating through the universe and like the, you know, uh, all matter merely, uh, all matter is merely condensed to a, uh, uh, what was energy condensed to a slow vibration or something? You know, I mean, you, you get yeah. this profound like wave form phenomenon when you're listening to it and you're like, wow. It's, it makes you like feel your pulse. You feel your, you know, um, your breath. You're just like, wow, this is, this is deep music. This isn't pop music. I mean, and that's when you asked about Sufi music, this is, you know, like in the beginning. And I was trying to distinguish what the, the instrumentation, how it was different. Like if you listen to music just on the radio in the Middle East right now, you're not listening to Sufi music, you know, you're listening to sort of pop music, like what you listen to on the radio here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but like those, those earthy old instruments. And when I mean old in the Middle East, I mean really old. Oh, I mean yeah. like centuries old. Thousands We're talking of years old. I mean, 6,000 like, year old instruments. Is, yeah. Know. Um, and, and people who have, have preserved the, the, the technique that of, you know, semitonal arrangement, uh, over that long, I, there was a reason why they were doing that. You know, I mean, th th there was something like, uh, about the, the particular sequence of, uh, of tones that, that people were like, oh, yeah, that, that. You know, like right, that, the spiritual well, technology. So, yeah. if I could ask you just to just to move the conversation slightly more uh, closer to the West, but still in the Near East, did you ever do any study of Byzantine chant? I know that you said that you were in Cairo and you heard the call to prayer, um, the Islamic call to prayer. Uh, do did you ever encounter any kind of Coptic Orthodox chants or anything like that that you found particularly interesting, or Byzantine chants while you were in Istanbul? Even though that population is growing smaller and smaller, but yeah, I dig. I um, so my uh, Egyptian colloquial Arabic teacher, he was Coptic. Um, oh, fantastic! The uh, the uh, the Nay player who's joining us on Thursday, he's you know he's Coptic in background. Um, I've got mad respect for some you know some Coptic music. The uh, I actually went to um, uh, I mean I I would say my exposure to Byzantine chant is much more limited than than my exposure to to Sufi music but I'm mm -hmm. I'm I've been totally moved in the same way by you know like Byzantine chant um early early music you know um I I went to the I Sophia in Istanbul and being in that um I guess the, um it's like a a basilica it, well I, it used to be a it used to be a Christian Orthodox basilica but now it's uh, and then and then it became a mosque and I think now it's a museum 
Yeah, it's I, you get that. I mean, it sort of um, we're, we're got some like uh, what's the word like uh, recurrent themes here. But like when you're walking through that and you're you're hearing some of the sounds like uh, the, the acoustic environment in that place. And as you're walking up these stone steps that have been pounded with human feet over, uh, you know, like hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of years, um, it, it, it has that same effect. And I don't want to call it reverence necessarily because I, I it depends on how, you know, like if you're spiritual, are you religious? You know, what's your, you know, like, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it, right, of course. It, it gives you this, this, this feeling of, of, of just um, something way bigger than it's almost humbling. Yeah, humbling. It that's is humbling. A, that's a really good word. It is humbling because because you realize that you know, wow, you know, it's 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 uh, I I, I yeah, I think humbling is an appropriate word, I guess. Yeah, the archaeoacoustics is what you're talking about, or yeah, just the dude. way. Yeah, yeah, dude. You step into the main reverberation chamber in that in that um yeah the Isophia, and you're just like oh yeah. I mean, imagine it like the height of the Byzantine Empire. You know, thirty or forty monks singing singing in a choir, and that you know with right. those with those acoustics. I mean. Right. It would have been an, un, you know, during a liturgy in the, in the Hagia Sophia, I mean, it would have been, it would have been an, ex, an experience in itself. Um, you know. So we're coming towards the, the last part of our show, and I wanted to spend at least a little bit of time on cancer research, um, your experience in the cancer research field. And, um, the paper that you recently published on music therapy and palliative care. Um, first of all, why you, from, from, from the time I met you, you were studying to be a doctor. You were an undergrad to go pre-med, to go into med school and do your, uh, you know, I've known you all through, um, your fellowship and when you were doing your residency in Portland. And, uh, it's like there was never any question that you were going to be a doctor. But why did you decide to go into oncology? You know, I, um, I was, I was really interested in molecular biology as an undergraduate. Um, and I thought I wanted to go to, um, graduate school, you know, like, um, when I graduated and I, um, I went and volunteered at a cancer ward, um, in Pittsburgh. Um, I followed my girlfriend at the time to Pittsburgh and I became a candy striper in this, um, you know, this cancer hospital. And I remembered my professors really saying like, you know, molecular biology is going to totally shift the paradigm in, in that field, you know, and, mm-hmm. And, and seeing, um, a lot of the side effects, uh, of the chemotherapy and the stuff that, you know, we were using, um, to treat cancer at the time, I was like, wow, this could, um, we, we really need molecular biology to, to really shift, shift some paradigms here in this field. And, and so I pretty much from the time that I went to medical school, I knew I wanted to do oncology. I also like the, I guess the, the sort of existential nature of it, you know, I mean, it's just a sort of, it's its own branch of medicine. Like you're, you're, you're confronting patients who are confronting, um, you know, their mortality pretty much from the get go. I mean, no matter like what stage, I mean, there's, you know, it's, um, and, and that's heavy. And I, um, I, I prefer that environment. I, I thrived, you know, in the critical care part of my training. Like I really, really liked working in the ICU. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I like that too. The, you had mentioned the paper and I think, um, so being a fellow at Anderson, you know, well, in order wait, to, I wanted to, I sorry. wanted to step back. When you were, when you were first studying molecular biology, you were also studying shamanism at the same time. That's true. And I, you were, I mean, you were studying is... ayahuasca and weren't, weren't you, didn't, weren't you at the time considering that, that psychedelics and cancer care could be a potential in your future or something like that? Um, you know, I, I have no idea with the FDA the way it is. I mean, I, I contacted Richard Strassman during that independent study about shamanism. Rick Strassman. Um, and I was really, yeah, sorry, right. uh, Rick Strassman. 
Um, and, and he was involved with maps and I had read his work and I was really intrigued by it. Um, later people were, were looking into stuff like that. Um, you know, I, th- I think more in the MDMA than, um, than, than well, yeah, and, 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 and but, more, but nevertheless, again. yeah. Like, I mean, talking about, um, folks, uh, you know, like what's the word, like, um, out, outside the box ways to help people deal with end of life, you know, uh, existential crises and right. um searching for uh you, you know something else i mean modern western medicine i think has got, got to the point unfortunately of being sort of like an assembly line um with barcoded medical record numbers and 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 people just don't feel like they're they're human anymore and and they're not necessarily treated like they're human anymore and i think we should be looking for i mean i'm not saying that but i'm just saying in general and that's what the music paper was all about was trying to uh, bring the the humanistic approach back into medicine because it, it's it's like way past due you know like it i mean i think um what what was fascinating to me uh, you know you would ask about cancer research i mean i'm not i i have very little background so of like you're, 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 research in oncology but 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 that that paper reviewed like clinical trials that were done in, in in cancer patients and what they found like the consistent thing that the Cochrane group found was that it, pain anxiety and and mood disturbance and quality of life um were all uh, impacted to a degree of statistical significance with music therapy and what I found and what what makes that paper novel is that if you I connected a completely different body of research and that was like um, functional um, neuroimaging in mm-hmm. in patients or not not patients but like in different um, populations of people where they looked at what areas of the brain light up when you're listening to and you're appreciating music and they found and like what was clear from reading that body of research was that um there was common uh, basically the same areas that were lighting up in in people who are you know listening to and appreciating music were the same areas um that were involved in the pathophysiology of pain uh anxiety and depression so hmm. there was like a, a mechanism there that had not been talked about up until then and i was like this this could be very important you know like um we're, we're talking about things, you know, like ways to try to help people with cancer besides just, you know, prescribing them things like, I mean, trying to approach them as, as like humans going through, you know, uh, a very deep, you know, heavy experience, like try, try to bring, to, to use music for what it can do. It doesn't have side effects like, you know, a lot of the other stuff that we use in modern Western medicine. And if, if it doesn't and, and you can and help re- relieve things like pain, anxiety and depression, I mean, think of the potential, you know, like particularly as you as you get into, you know, folks who are older and they got like, um, you know, uh, mileage on their organs and the and the and the medicines that we use to treat some of those symptoms like pain, anxiety and depression. And so, you know, like if you can right. use a medium like music to transform, you know, people people's situation um, without, uh, yeah, like causing problems well, we in, can, in those other areas with medications. I mean, yeah, I, I'm you all can step not, back. You can step back. I mean, pain, anxiety and depression are all symptoms of too much um, inflammation and stress. Whether it's, you know, and they, and then, then the root causes of anxiety and, and pain are very similar. Emotional pain and physical are, are almost the exact same thing. Um, and so if you can find an intervention that, say, takes people's minds off of pain, like music, that is much more beneficial in the long run than, say, taking a, taking a pill that makes them, you know, makes that inflammation go away for a short period of time. Uh, so what did, what did the paper find? That there's, there's a physiological mechanism and that there is a statistically significant response to music therapy? 
This I isn't mean, you didn't actually do any music therapy studies. You're just you're just uh, um, doing a survey of research that has been done in this area. Right. It's it's a review article, and and, mm-hmm. it, and basically it's a review article that's connecting two very separate bodies of literature, but the, bodies of literature that I think should be, you know, um, that we should be looking at together. Um, the, the statistical studies and the neuroimaging. Right. So the, the clinical trials and the neuroimaging, I think um, up till now, music, you know, when when we try to like uh, talk about like how how is music therapy helping anyone? Everybody's just been guessing, you know, and there's right. nothing wrong with like theorization. That's you could just say flat listening to nice music makes people feel better. I mean, right. and that's just a very simple thing to say. And you right. can say, oh, that's good. But yeah. having the actual clinical research and the studies to say when it's effective and when it's not and what kind right. of personality types respond well. I mean, exactly. that's, that is information that's much better than, you know, old wives tales or common sense or things it's, that you would assume to be intuitive. It's, it's more useful than anecdotal, you know, like, I mean, I mean, to be able to like, I mean, look and say like, oh, these are the neurotransmitters. This is the neural circuitry. This, you know, that, that, that explains like why, uh, you know, pa- people feel better, you know, like from a pain, anxiety, depression, you know, perspective that, that are going through cancer, you know, like, and, and all of my cancer patients, like when they, I don't want to say all, but I would say like a, hu- a huge number of my cancer patients, like when they found out about the paper, they were all downloading it and reading it and coming back into the clinic and being like, I completely agree with the, you know, the content of this paper. Like I'm, I'm listening to music to help me through this experience. And I'm glad that somebody's acknowledging it from the, from the Western allopathic perspective, you know, like this needs to be talked about. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting intersection in between my role as a, as a physician, but you know, that my other life as a musician and a composer and a producer, um, and that's probably the closest to an intersection that, that really <laughs> exists for me. Oh, come on. You can carve a whole field out of scratch here. <laughs> huh. You can publish books and lecture worldwide. Uh, it's, um, it's a really interesting paper. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's open access. My, my mentor, right. you know, I, I had two co-authors. One of them was a department chair in integrative medicine and then the other one was a department chair of palliative care at Anderson. Um, super supportive. Um, especially Cohen, you know, the, the integrative medicine, um, you know, uh, the, the department chair of that department, he was very, very supportive of this paper. And, you know, fortunately, we were able to get the grant money to to make it open access. So nobody you don't have to pay to read this. And that, and that's great. Like, I want everybody who, who wants to read it, be able to read it and, and have as much access to it as possible. Great. Now, you were um, a fellow at MD Anderson Cancer Research Institute, and you had the choice to stay on as a researcher there or move into uh, a practice where you're actually treating patients. What made you decide to go back into practicing as opposed to staying in research? What's the state of the cancer research field right now? I mean, I find the the research and some of the research that's happening in Anderson to be absolutely fascinating. Um, There is some, I mean, just amazing work being done there. Um, particularly in the areas of like microRNA, you know, the exploitation of microRNAs to, to, um, yeah, like a, as a therapeutic target. Um, I mean, right. there's, there's so much happening, like the, the cancer biology of metastasis. Right. Cancer is essentially a cell replication error. RNA are the, the main component of building the cell. So you're, when you're targeting RNA, you're trying to target the actual pieces of the cell that are, that are losing control. It's, uh, we, it's, there's, there's just so much you, I could, you know, I could go on for yeah, hours about how, how sexy the research, uh, at Anderson <laughs> is, you know, in, in, in cancer, cause it is. 
Um, I think everybody's got different gifts, you know? I mean, I, um, personally, I, I, I think it's a question of what you find most fulfilling for me. Um, I personally find it most fulfilling to try to, um, to talk to people and counsel people through extremely difficult situations. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my whole introduction to, um, clinical medicine, like the first patients I ever met, um, was through a palliative care doctor at Pittsburgh at that cancer institute. His name was Bob Arnold and he's very well published in, in, in communicating with cancer patients. The guy was like, I was so ahead of his time in terms of like walking into a room and, and helping people deal with these, I mean, horrendous, you know, life situations, um, and bringing peace and calm and, and understanding between the patients and their families. And I was just like wowed, um, by him and, and what he could do. And, and that, that, that really was, had a profound effect on me, like going forward, you know, like, um, if you, if you want to see patients at Anderson, you're, you're going to work in this, um, county clinic. Um, it's like a, a, sort of a safety net hospital. It's called LBJ. And, um, we had Anderson faculty from, you know, all many different departments, like, you know, like helping us, um, you know, help the underserved of Houston. And it was really, um, an inspiring experience. I mean, I, I, I formed relationships with people in that experience, both like, you know, staff and patients that like, I, I mean, it totally, um, it was very inspiring to say, you know, we, we do need, we need, we need all of these things. We need people to do quality research in the lab. We need, you know, trans, uh, translational re like researchers who are looking at the clinical side and the bench stuff. And we also need oncologists who, um, can communicate effectively, you know, mm -hmm. like who can talk to people, um, I, it's, it's, this is, this sort of touches on a more, a little bit Whereas, more complex well, subject. You know, but, when you're in research, it's almost like, um, assembly line medicine, almost, where well, you're, you're doing clinical just, trials and you're just, just studying totally one different. particular clinical thing and people are sort of shunted into categories where they don't maybe get personalized one on one care that you get with your, your main practitioner. I mean, it's like research is like, it's just totally different. I mean, um, I've met, I've met, you know, researchers who are so, they're, they are so into it for, for cancer patients. You know, that's why they're there. They get up there in the morning and they're like, I'm going to work like, I mean, like, they work like residents. I mean, they, they, their schedule is no less brutal than a, you know, an internal medicine resident. They're working like a hundred hours a week, but their right. motivation, when you say, their when you say working like a resident, you're talking double shifts, maybe 30 hours with no sleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying like you, they work until the work is done. They, you know, <laughs> and they, they don't make excuses. They just do it. And, and, and that, and I got mad respect for the people who are, who are, you know, putting their gifts to, you know, uh, like to, to manifest a better reality for cancer, you know, patients all over the, I mean, it's like the medicine, the tools that we're using now, I mean, it's come a long way, but we got a long way to go. You know, it, even if it's not, you know, we're talking about like, you know, treatment options, we're talking about at least like, um, prognosis and, and like determining, okay, like for example, in metastatic melanoma, you've got like you know, 10 to 15% of patients who are going to, you know, you could have it in your lungs, your liver, your bones, and your brain. You do high dose IL-2 and you give a hundred people, like 10 to 15% of those people, they're, they can be actually cured. Like, like lymphoma gone, or sorry, melanoma gone, uh, you know, problem solved. And then 85 to 90%, like it may have no benefit at all. And some of wow. them, it will make them even worse. Now, what, what I hope that, you know, like the, the, the research, you know, cancer research, um, field can do over time is help identify patients, you know, who, who are the people, who is that 10 to 15%, you know, so that you're not having to give the high dose IL-2 to the other, you know, 85 to 90 who aren't going to necessarily get any benefit at all. That to me is, is equally is really, important. This is really where the genetic part of it comes in because you need to find out what the genetic 
piece of it is for each individual that causes each those individual's people to tumor. Respond. Yeah, I mean, you need to right. you need to be able to like sequence tumor DNA and say what what are the driver mutations? What are what aren't? We're not talking about passenger mutations from sloppy DNA replication. We're talking about driver mutations that mm-hmm. make you know make cells cancerous. That's the that's the the kind of the holy grail right now in in, in oncology. But um, I, I guess like personally, like what fulfills me the most is like I mean. Uh, like basically communicating effectively, communicating in an honest and forthright manner to where all of my patients, they pretty much, they know their prognosis and they're really educated about their condition. Like there's no surprises. There's no, you know, um, there, I, I think that informed consent is, is a principle that like, um, is, is totally, what, what's the word underrated in practice right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, like this, there's this study that was done. I want to say, um, I'm going to get my stuff right here. Uh, it was a study that was done either at Hopkins or um, MassGen, but they interviewed like uh, stage four incurable colorectal cancer patients and and uh, stage four incurable uh, non small cell lung cancer patients, right? And they did a survey of the patients and, and they said, um, like, is your or, or is chemotherapy going to cure you? And I want to say 69% of the metastatic non-small cell lung cancer patients said they thought that the chemotherapy would cure them. And 81% of the metastatic colorectal cancer patients said that they thought the chemo would cure them. Now, I, I get that, you know, a lot of oncologists are going to respond to that study by saying, well, there's always going to be a group of patients who, who, you know, you, you explain prognosis, but they just, they, that's not what they want to hear. And they're not, they're, you know, they're not listening. That's not 69 are- to 81%. That, I mean, right. 69 to 81% suggests this, this is a fundamental communication problem that we have here. You so know? what is the actual percentage? Zero. Yes. <laughs> okay. I wanted to, I just, I just no, wanted I mean, to make sure people understood the, that, that right. in, in stage four of those particular types of cancers that you mentioned, which no are particularly cure, pernicious, it's chemo is, is, is not going to help at all. It's, well, it's, it's not going to cure it. It can right. slow it down. But, but that's a critical distinction, in my opinion. Like, if you're going to risk life-threatening side effects, like, it, to me, informed consent implies you understand that, right, it, that right. it cannot cure you. It will merely slow it down. And if that's true, then, you, you, like, the patient should know that. You know, they, they should, there, there shouldn't be, like, I mean, okay, I'll give you the, you know, the 10 to 20% of patients who just, like, yeah, that, that's not, they don't want to let that into the reality, no matter who tells them, no matter how they tell, but, so but 69 what you're saying to 81%, that, yeah. that's a pretty concerning set of numbers. You're telling me that the placebo effect doesn't work in cancer care? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, I, I guess, to me, compassionate oncology is it's just like explaining to people what what the score is without like sugarcoating it or watering it down because i mean ultimately if if you if you approach it from a paternalistic standpoint of of information censorship and you say right, to yourself right. well i'm going to i'm not going to divulge all the information because i'm afraid of the uh, of the disturbance the emotional disturbance that that bad news may cause i mean what i learned in the intensive care unit which i spent a lot of time in was that that approach doesn't protect anyone from anything it merely delays the impact you know, right. until a much more That's disastrous sad. time. And so, you know, like if people are empowered with the information from the beginning and they know their odds and you give them, you, you bend over backwards to use, you know, prognostic models and try to give them hard numbers and tell them, this is the risk. This is the benefit. I want to help you as much as I possibly can. This is how much I can help you. And this is, you know, how these are the risks that you're taking. If you, if you come at it from that angle, 
people are, they're so grateful. They are so like, ultimately their you know, their families will come back and say like, you know, you have no idea how much it means to me that, that, that you, you know, treated, treated us like, you know, human beings and, and like, yeah, like not like barcoded medical record numbers. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it, that, that's what really moves me and, and fulfills me as an oncologist is, um, those, those patient relationships and, and helping people just deal with their situation as to the, you know, the best that you can. Great. And you're, uh, you're practicing in, um, the Hood River area now? I'm practicing in, uh, the, the Dallas, in fact, it's called Salivo Cancer Center. It's in the Columbia River Gorge. Um, which is beautiful. It's in, uh, beautiful area. Northern Oregon. Absolutely amazing. It's about an hour east of, uh, of Portland. Um, I'm and fortunate. You're, uh, you're also That's getting, um, here. you're also having a marriage ceremony this weekend. Congratulations. So, so it's actually, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's two the days ceremony. After the show. It's the, the funny, the funniest thing is that, um, so I like basically like, um, I, so we, we never had time to have a wedding during graduate medical education, you know? Um, so, <laughs> your so, wife is a nurse, right? Or my wife her is, as a nurse, she's actually right. a hospice nurse. In fact, um, she like, so we agreed, we went to the courthouse and it, you know, signed the papers and everything, but we agreed at some point in the future, we would have a small celebration of family, um, and some food and some music and, and you know, like, um, celebrate life, you know? Um, and because we both understand how precious it is being both an oncologist and a hospice nurse, we take nothing for granted in that mm-hmm. department. So, so, so we do this. And, and when I call the, you know, I called Sinan and Abos, they're like, Oh yeah, dude, we're there. Um, and I called Miles and Miles with the, you know, he was the one who said, Oh, uh, he was like, dude, if you know, you got a drummer from Uzbekistan, you got a string player from Istanbul, I'm coming. I may be in the Gulf. You know, he was like, uh, if you're bringing all of these people together for this wedding, he was like, it's a crime against humanity not to do a performance in Portland. Um, <laughs> it's, so, so that's how this whole show actually ended up, you know, uh, starting. So this is your wedding band. I see. <laughs> I see. This is your wedding band. All right. We're going. I, I I'm going. To- I'm going to, I'm going to go. I'm going to enjoy the show. I think it's going to be a great show, uh, this week in Portland. And uh, again, we strongly I wish I could go. <laughs> anybody in the area to come out. I and, do. Uh, and have a good time. You can find more information about the show at stereognosis.com. And, uh, Patrick, it was great talking to you. I'm sure we could go on and on oh, for yes. a long time about all of the different things that you're into and all of the sexy cancer <laughs> research. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Patrick. Very, very interesting topics. Thanks, thanks for interviewing me. I, and I, really I will be seeing more of yeah, you later this week. Yeah, I'll be seeing more of you later this week, even though you're busy. When do musicians start getting into town? Uh, Tuesday night. They have none of them have ever met each other. It's a very ambitious situation, but the the whole the whole goal of the project was very ambitious from the beginning. I have you know like I have no doubt this is it's it's going to be mind blowing. I've seen every one of these musicians perform for like an hour and a half by themselves, and I, it was totally phenomenal. So. Um, it's going to be exciting to, to find the common repertoires and we've, we've been putting the set list together for, I mean, weeks now. So, um, I'm really looking forward to it. All right. And again, that's at the Thursday, August 29th, the Alberta Rose Theater. You can go to stereonosis.com for more information on where to buy tickets. And, uh, remember to check us out on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Check us out on Facebook. Um, go to dosenation.com. You can send us feedback, contact at dosenation.com. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash dosenation, and YouTube, youtube.com forward slash TV, which is where the uh, the video that I'm doing. By the way, everybody, for those of you who are uh, who have been following the little series that I've been, their little series I've been trying to produce, um, it's in editing now. It's been finished. Uh, so uh, my, my, my 
experience at the Benedictine Monastery will be up hopefully within the next two weeks. So make sure you look for that too on the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Dose Nation TV. All right. Thanks again to Patrick Archie. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Yep. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, thanks. Thanks.